Welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes. I am your host. Today, we continue our conversation about Shakespeare's problem plays with a discussion about Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night is not technically a problem play, but it is very frequently called a melancholic comedy, which to me feels like a differently worded version of the definition of problem play. So to help us sort of parse out some of the problem spots in Twelfth Night, we have two new guests to the podcast with us today. First, we have Kai Tawil Morsink. Kyle, Kai, Kyle, Wall. I uh, haven't even <laughs> smoked yet. Hi, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Kai. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm a full-time earth science graduate student and part-time person who just really likes Shakespeare. Sweet. <laughs> Kai, I'm so happy to have you here. Your thoughts in the class that we took last year on Twelfth Night are actually very much the reason why I'm including Twelfth Night in this season at all. So. Oh, wow. So no pressure. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be talking with you about Shakespeare again. <laughs> Sweet. And our second guest is Emily Sucher. Emily, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Emily. I lead with they, them pronouns. She, hers, okay sometimes. I am an actor and intimacy director and theater multi-hyphenate. Um, and Twelfth Night is my favorite Shakespeare play. Sweet. I am excited to dive into it with you. I feel like the two of you are going to bounce off of each other very well during this episode. So I'm very excited to be meeting Emily. I'm like getting hyped to discuss Twelfth Night yeah, with you. Yeah, so much to unpack. That's like <laughs> the beauty of this season is like connecting Shakespeare nerds who don't necessarily know each other from around the country and maybe world. I don't think we have world this season, but listen, country. I'm in Canada right now. <laughs> Oh, hell yeah. Basically so, <laughs> international. Hey. <laughs> big. There we go. There we go. All right. Well, before we dive into talking about Twelfth Night, I'm going to get a little high, and I think Kai and Emily are drinking today. <laughs> yeah, and at the risk of spoilers for the rest of the episode, why is Twelfth Night your favorite Shakespeare Ooh, Yeah. Play? Okay, so for a couple of reasons, um, I don't think it's perfect. I don't think that any of it's perfect, but I think that Twelfth Night is a because there are a lot of Shakespeare plays where I'm like, the B plot is great, but the A plot, nah, I don't know if I like them or something like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the entire ensemble has so for, so as an actor, which was like kind of my entry entryway into theater. There are so many good parts, like there's so many great roles that get a, something interesting going on I I love any play with gender fuck <laughs> yeah I would say Twelfth Night is my favorite play overall it might be a like my impulse just to say that Viola is my favorite protagonist um but that one I would need to like like I haven't put them all on like a wall and 
sorted that out. And no time. one's going to come back later and be like, what about you? you <laughs> no, I feel like we're allowed to go with like serious gut. Yeah, violence. no, but <laughs> speaking in draft. Yes. <laughs> I, I, say, I think that Violet, that's my, and also I'm going to put a pin in this because one of your questions was about Orsino. I don't think that Arsino is worthy of Viola. <laughs> All right, y'all, we are back. We are nice and litty and we are ready to talk about Twelfth Night. So like I said in our intro, this play is very frequently referred to as a melancholic comedy. It's definitely got a lot of funny, but it, it's got some low moments too. And I am currently working on a production that the director's goal was for it to be funny, just funny, like did not want to lean into any of the melancholy. And I think what we found is that is difficult to do. <laughs> um, so my first question is like, do y'all think that's possible to, to make a completely comedic Twelfth Night? Emily, do you want to start? I mean, possible, sure. <laughs> Successful? <laughs> Who's to say? <laughs> and to be fair, I haven't sat and watched your production or another another production, so I can't say to that. It just, um, is it comedy at the expense of something? Mm. What are they ignoring? Or I guess that that's what makes it hard. Yeah, I think those are good questions. Like, I feel like we have been successful until the last three minutes of the play. Um, Ooh, when, when, yeah, when Malvolio... Yeah, yeah. Are we going to get into Malvolio? Oh, we will get into Malvolio. Uh, When Malvolio makes his return and you really find out like, oh, this guy got screwed. Like that is the point that pretty much every night, except for last night, you've just felt it like deflate. Like we had a good time in the audience and now we're not having a good time anymore. And last night, the only difference was like, we got a vocal reaction, but that vocal reaction was basically the whole audience like, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. So I was telling you before that I was in a production of Twelfth Night in ooh, 2016, 17? I don't know. But I played Festy and friend, mutual friend Jeff uh, played Malvolio. And you know, you always look back on shows and you're like, some things worked, some things didn't. But I think that we fixed the ending. Ooh, okay. So what we did was, um, so Malvolio comes out and he's upset. And Festy's like, oh, it was me. Uh, here's my the voice that I was doing. And now you realize it was the same person. And then um, the line about the whirly gig of time. I'm butchering this, but because it was a while ago. Uh, brings his revenges and then Malvolio starts laughing and then Festy starts Ooh. laughing. Malvolio sticks a hand out, Festy takes his hand and we shake and then he twists my wrist and says I'll be revenged and so now we're setting up a sequel of Festy and Malvolio pranking each other to the end of time. 
I can get on board with that. I'm kind I of think mad. There's a I've YA never... novel out there somewhere, actually, <laughs> which is like the return of Malvolio. <laughs> I have this memory of reading this novel. Yeah, I think it's interesting because we were also talking during the break about different iterations of different characters. And it's so interesting, even if Malvolio is looking for revenge to have him being like laughing at all, at all joining in on the joke ever. Because his brand so strongly is like, I will not join in on this joke. I do not find this funny. <laughs> and I've said, I've said it before, but there's this like time when he comes down to yell at Sir Toby and Andrea Gucic and everybody. And he's like, will you please be quiet? It's the middle of the night. And it's like, yeah, actually, it's super fucking annoying when it's the middle of the night and you're trying to sleep and people are like, lighten up, laugh with us. So I have a lot of sympathy for Malvolio kind of not wanting to join the joke just because everybody thinks he should be laughing. So that's kind of like two really intense things happening right at the end there where he's like, I'll join your laughter, but I'm going to become a supervillain because of it. (laughs) (laughs) We had worked on a, a few things together so they've got this rivalry going on kind of through the whole thing and malvolio yeah i mean i get just wanting to go to sleep when your neighbors are being loud and rude but he also abuses his position to creep on olivia he's this pedantic cop Yeah, and right now that we've kind of jumped to Malvolio, and like when I was thinking about Malvolio before the podcast recording, I was like, one thing that's whack to me is how accurately he's described in the text itself. I actually don't think there's anything about Malvolio that Mariah doesn't already understand, right? She's like, he's so in love with himself, he believes everyone else is in love with him too. Like, you know, watch me manipulate his little insecure self-loving brain and and then it totally works because she's got him cold red like she knows exactly what's going on with him (laughs) and we all kind of know that guy too in different iterations right like just like not self-aware enough to realize that not everyone is in love with you and and yeah not a likable person (laughs) hard to like Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like one of those things that she knows about him and kind of one of the reasons they're picking on him in the first place is like this Puritan thing. And when I wrote to y'all with the questions, I was like, I don't think the Puritan bit really like works anymore. Like we don't hate Puritans anymore. It's not funny to like torture them. But I will say like every night when Mariah says that he's a bit of a Puritan, the whole audience cackles at it. And that's not something I'd expect, but like, I guess people understand. I think that, you know, it's one thing to be a Puritan in terms of your own values and maybe he's this, maybe he's that. But if you are using those standards to judge other people, Mm. that's where, yeah, I think that feels very relevant. Yeah, I'm thinking about it now, but I'm I'm not sure Malvolio, I mean, maybe you're not saying this, but Malvolio isn't a Puritan for himself, right? He's a hedonist. He wants to wear branched velvet and sit on a day bed and like, you know, like that's really not Puritanism as I understand it. It's 
it's definitely all about having petty power over other people, right? And and I think to the extent that I think it is funny and can be uncomplicatedly funny to see Malvolio brought low, I think it's because you feel a little schadenfreude is justified because he keeps executing, like, keeps exercising this petty power over other people. But it's so easy for it to be too much, right? When you Once you don't feel like he's getting his comeuppance anymore, once you feel like they're kicking him when he's down, I don't know. It's not it's not funny to me anymore. And that that's what makes that balance really difficult, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. The the Sir Topaz scene, I think, is like a, a delicate balance because it can feel like torture. And I've seen it played like torture. But like on the flip side of things, I think like if you have a feste who's able to play that comedically enough the audience can almost ignore what's going on with Malvolio because they're laughing at Feste. I don't know if that makes anything better. About <laughs> <laughs> that guy, Feste's funny. <laughs> it's tough. It depends on, I think, a lot of other character details between, mostly about uh, Malvolio and I think a lot of other people are also just going to bring their backgrounds to it on how easily you empathize with him or not. Because in terms of being a classist boss, um, yeah, I, I, again, I think it's very relevant to the modern day. And I've also had supervisors who exercise control tactics to do things just because they control your time or hold things over you that they only do because they know that they have the power of whether you can pay your rent or not. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I would do this whole elaborate uh, not torture people, but I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and with regard to kind of like the employer-employee relationship, it's like, I feel like everything Mariah does to Malvolio is justified. And then like, you know, Sir Toby or whatever, like this whole like, shut up, um, snack up, right? Like, he's not Sir Toby's boss. He's trying to boss around Sir Toby, but, you know, other people in this play are also assholes. <laughs> oh that's so, true uh, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely with regard to kind of the comedy of the play overall and whether or not you can make it exclusively funny I feel like exclusively funny is like a mythical thing right like it doesn't comedy at the risk of sounding like really affected but like comedy is funny because it's like gets at something real inside of us right Hmm. and when I was like looking through the the script beforehand and trying to like think about your your questions that you prompted us with I was like what are the funniest fucking lines in this show and there's this one like again like Andrew Sir Toby exchange where where they're trying to get Feste to sing for them and it's like do you want a love song or a song of good life right Mm-hmm. And, and and Toby's like a love song and Andrew's like yeah I care not for good life it's like it's like funny and it's bad I don't know it, yeah sorry trying to just repeat the script is not maybe the best evidence for like the vibes that I'm getting off of this exchange but no, no, no. I, I think that yeah well that that's what like comedy comedy is from truth 
right? Something's funny because it's real or or it's uh, sometimes when you're in a show and you're, you go through a run and sometimes you get reliable things that people think are funny. And then sometimes you'll get a laugh in a random place and then you'll go backstage and be like, why were people laughing at that? And sometimes it's like, well, maybe that's funny, but maybe that was a moment that they weren't expecting or mm-hmm. something that was like, familiar or something that feels like an in-joke and they're like oh I'm the one who gets it so it you know audiences are going to vary in their reactions and it's hard to know whether something is comedic just judging if you're just going by are people laughing the whole time is it just non-stop jokes oh yeah that resonates so hard uh Kai, I think it's funny, the quote that you just pulled before you said what it was, I was like, oh, it's going to be, I was adored once too. Oh, that one's so sad. Yes. It also comes out of nowhere. Yes. There's all this other back and forth and everybody's talking and and then suddenly he's like, yeah. 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 And yeah, it's, but it's like the perfect example of what we're talking about because Every night it's half and half. Half the audience is like, oh, and half the audience is cackling at that line. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Andrew actually is this the the essence of the melancholy comedy. <laughs> I think Sir Andrew is like high key the best role to get to play in the show because you just get all the bang and one liners and <laughs> It's actually, sorry, I think that Viola has won, not to be pedantic, but I think Viola has won bang in one liner along the same lines, along the same comedic lines. And it's when Malvolio is like, did you just come from the Countess Olivia's now, right? And then she's like, yeah, on a moderate pace, I have since arrived hither. I think that that's funny. Catty little bitch. <laughs> anyway. Yes. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um... Anyway, looking at other questions I had for today, other characters I want to look at for the day. Uh, let's talk about Orsino for a little bit. Let's talk about Orsino. <laughs> like, is this dude likable? Should he be likable? Should we be okay with our protagonist liking this dude? Like, Kai, do you want to start with? Or see no thoughts. <laughs> There's so many thoughts inside of my. I like really excited to hear Emily's thoughts. Too. We we are like I think we're both really ready to talk about oh, it. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. I'm gonna start by way of King Lear, which is that I was talking to like one of my best friends about King Lear recently, um, someone who'd never seen it, and they were like, "Why? Sorry, why do you like Edmund so much?" And I was like, "He's so fuckable." And she was like, "How do you know that he's that attractive?" I was like. I, I can't explain to you. Edmund is just Shakespeare's single most fuckable character. And 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 I find I was thinking about it, I'm thinking about it, and I was like, it's I mean, one reason you know Edmund is hot is because everyone is throwing themselves at him, right? Everyone on stage wants Edmund. And and like the main thing we know about Orsino, like the first thing we learn about Orsino from that captain that Viola meets is that Olivia doesn't want him, right? So you're yeah. setting him up like for this really difficult situation, like with how the audience is gonna see him. Sorry, obviously we know things about him before that because he's literally the first line of the play. He comes <laughs> in going, I love music. It's true. It's true. And Sorry, we're like, what an intellectual. 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, but I was I was thinking about it and like what I, I want Orsino to be attractive, right? I want the audience to be like, you know, because we were talking about we love Viola. You want Viola to have like a happy ending with like the world's hottest commodity, um, the nicest, smartest, most sensitive partner ever. <laughs> but it's really hard to get there. And and part of me still feels like it's a mystery as to why it's hard to like Orsino. Like, cause he writes terrible poetry, but Orlando writes worse poetry and I actually like it. And I like <laughs> Orlando, Orlando, I believe he's trying his best. <laughs> right. Oh, it's the sincerity you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, like I think Orsino doesn't even try. He just mm-hmm. he thinks like like I I read it on spark notes and i'll pass it your way and aren't i handsome <laughs> like so yeah. or so i think that likable is tough because i think you can cast a charming actor and you know let them be cute and smiley and they'll be likable but i don't think he's worthy of viola hmm. he's like the wittiest most like you know, smart, resourceful, but still relatable, like in touch with her feelings, a protagonist in Shakespeare's works. Like she's so smart. (laughs) We actually want to talk about Viola. We said we wanted to talk about Viola. We want to talk about Viola. But that's the point. Like he's not worthy. Like, but also one thing that I really surprised me when I worked on Twelfth Night is because you think, okay, so Viola's the protagonist. He ends up with her. He must be a lead role, right? He's in four scenes. No. <laughs> a really small part. Like the B plot characters like are do so much more than him. Yeah. So yeah, one of the things is there just isn't enough time, I think, at least on paper for them to build a compelling or meaningful relationship. Yeah, and there's even less time before she's telling us she wants to be his wife, right? Uh It's just like, you got hired three days ago. You're like literally asking the other staff in the house whether he's prone to like forgetting about people, right? Like there's this little exchange where like Valentine or somebody is like, well, I hope Orsino doesn't get bored of you, right? And then Viola's like, oh, is he inconstant in his favors? It's like, it's like maybe it's a little bit of a power play, but it's like you literally just got hired here. And the end of that scene, she's like, I wish it was his wife. And you're like, sorry? Yeah, Where and they, they just met. Like there's a lot of, like when you think about Much Ado, they have this backstory that they allude to, but we don't see. So like depending on how you build that portrayal the the audience knows that there's history there so if they depending on how they play the beginning and everything it's like oh they seem mad at each other did that turn around fast but like you it didn't turn around fast because we know there was more with violin or you know like we have a timeline we have numbers of days and yeah or even like to just like the most obscure couple in the play I feel like is Mariah and Sir Toby right and then we get like a couple of references to the fact I mean like we get the sense that they know each other right we get the sense that they've been hanging out and doing like questionable pranks on various members of the household for like years and years and years um and it's it's even more convincing than this main couple is supposed to be like you're saying it feels like there's not a lot there 
I agree that Orsino isn't worth Viola, but it's almost like I don't need Orsino to be worth Viola. I just want Viola to want him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 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 like the play does a great job of convincing me that Orsino is like obsessed with Viola, even when he thinks he's obsessed with Olivia. Because there's that scene where he's like, Diana's lift is not more smooth and rubious, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's not out, staring at Viola's face, being like, you are so pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe that you're into Viola. I'm sold. Mm-hmm. But, but where's the where's the scene where Viola stares into Orsino's face and is like, your lips are so pretty. It's where's that scene? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. I feel like you almost get a boring kind of smooth feeling Orsino or you get like the comedic Orsino who plays up some of the more chauvinistic qualities but then like how could you Mm -hmm. ever be okay with Viola ending up with it (laughs) like yeah yeah as an intimacy director I've been um, one of the I think most inspirational Shakespeare productions I've seen from that side of things was um, As You Like It at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I believe it was directed by Rosa Joshi and it was beautiful like that. But like the performances were great and, you know, it's such a lovely space there. But I think that I I was really paying attention to the movement and the design. And each couple in it had sort of a movement sequence that they would do kind of between scenes. There would be music playing. And so there was a movement language for Phoebe and Sylvius and a movement language for every pairing. So it was like we got to see them connect Mm. romantically in staging even if it wasn't through text so then when we would see them and it's like oh I guess this couple's together now it's like oh but we saw that kind of build um Mm -hmm. so it's possible but it requires texturally yes Yes. (laughs) but that's why it's a play and not a novel like it's got to be performed and I also think that if you can somehow put some of the Willow Cabin speech into Orsino and Viola instead of into Viola and Olivia. Because then you're not going to stop me from shipping Viola and Olivia. You're just not. that's the thing. Yeah, (laughs) 12 Night, Shakespeare's gayest play for many (laughs) reasons. Right. But it's like all the good love, like, like, all the good love language in this play, like Willow Cabin speech. And, and like, the first thing Antonio says to Sebastian is like, are you going? Like, won't you let me come with you? It's like, that's it, man. That's love. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, I feel like that's a perfect place for us to transition into talking about <laughs> Senor Antonio. <laughs> oh. Poor, poor, poor man. <sighs> Is it possible for him to have a happy ending? Like, textually, I don't know. But, like... <laughs> <laughs> a movement sequence that you yeah asked. you know <laughs> like can we sneak can we sneak something like in like that in there like you have a creative director if you bring on designers that you know are creative I mean that's where I'm like I'm, I'm picky about Shakespeare because I'm like Shakespeare productions if you want me to like go out and see it and pay money for this one what are what do you have to say because if you're just doing the same thing as everything else, then I may as well watch it at home on something that's already been done. So, like, I think I, I 
put a higher bar for a lot of Shakespeare productions because if it's been done a million times already this one way, then what other voices are you showcasing? What other, So in terms of movement or puppetry, like whatever different designers have to offer, um, there are lots of ways to interpret it without even necessarily changing the text. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like all of your listeners are probably where we are regarding Antonio and Sebastian, but just in case anyone is not already there, I feel like I should say that like Antonio constantly offering to support Sebastian like I don't know there's to me this parallel with the way Orsino won't leave Olivia alone even though she just lost her like father and brother and like as soon as Sebastian admits to Antonio that like he's really upset because he just lost his sibling like Antonio is like well like don't let me like get in the way of whatever it is that's going on with you I just want to support you however I can give Sebastian money he's like following him to Illyria where Antonio is wanted by the law <laughs> to kind of nebulously provide support like <laughs> yeah it's truly if there's a romance that I'm rooting for in like this really tender unfolding way in this play it's this romance and it just there's no way you can like cut the script to make it end differently, right? You you have Viola Mary Racino and you have Olivia Mary Sebastian. And it's really hard for it to feel like Olivia and Sebastian is gonna go anywhere as a romance. I mean <laughs> Yeah, it's like watching Antonio on the side makes it so much worse. Uh uh poor thing. Yeah, I did like have a fever, like one of those moments where you're like, what if I did this production of this play and I've solved everything that's wrong with it? I had like this fever dream sequence where I was like, listen, Viola and Sebastian are played by the same actor and Orsino and Antonio are played by the same actor. And um, somehow all the scenes where they talk to each other don't matter. <laughs> and, and like that way you steal the fact that Viola's love for Orsino is requited with the fact that Antonio's love for Sebastian is real and true and beautiful. And like somehow if you can like put those things together, then you've solved it. Oh. It's like a fever dream. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta find Olivia in there somewhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't want to leave Olivia behind either. Yeah. Yeah. You don't yeah. need to be married to someone to be happy, I don't think. But I mean. <laughs> where where would you ever think that <laughs> yeah I mean when the alternative is everybody dies <laughs> yeah it's a melancholy comedy when everyone does get married at the end but we're not sure how we feel about it there you go <laughs> that's the vibe yeah, I mean, the only thing we could come up with for our production, and we did not end up doing this because it's silly, is that Antonio spends a lot of time at the end with the officers, and we were like, what if the op one of the officers just started, like, flirting with Antonio in the background? Like, nobody ever has to know that that's what's happening, but, like, you know, maybe he doesn't end up going to jail because he flirts his way out of jail and then lives happily ever after with this officer. <laughs> not living the ethical slut lifestyle antonio is like whither you go i will go like he's, 
guy put a monogamous soul set on Sebastian, I feel like. No, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I it's just uh, hard. I think he's, he's Sebastian sexual. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> oh. This has made me sad, guys. <laughs> I think well, there needs to be like a support group of all the Antonios. <laughs> so many. And all of Shakespeare. Yeah. 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 of Venice, Antonio. And uh, I mean, Tempest Antonio, I guess. Maybe. What <laughs> to do, Antonio is okay. He's just, he's, he's outside of the drama. <laughs> He's just old. He's just a lovely <laughs> old guy. <laughs> okay. uh, wow. I feel like at some point during this, like the gin really hit. And now I'm like, just like, <laughs> where are we? Where, what are we doing? <laughs> it's the joy of Bulls with the Bard. It's Shakespeare, but we can't take it too seriously. <laughs> Intoxicated. You know. <laughs> yeah. You got it. Shakespeare doesn't, <laughs> doesn't need that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true <laughs> all right well I have one more question before we wrap up and I feel like it's to me the most interesting and important question we have which is like how does this play change if Viola is viewed through the lens of like a trans mask person, a trans femme person, maybe a non-binary person, and like what kind of impact does that have on both the comedy and the melancholy in this play? Emily, would you like to start? Okay, I mean the possibilities are endless. So just I, I think without completely workshopping like five separate different productions uh just <laughs> no workshop all of them here now. <laughs> okay well so viola as a trans femme character on paper that one seems pretty melancholy like if if she has found who she is if she is viola as you know viola being the name we have for the femme aspect of this character the femme presenting part of this character then I would take Cesario to be her dead name and she's in putting on this persona that is painful for her but for survival after this shipwreck and then it's about wanting so badly to return to who she is and feeling so there might be more desperation in winning like like if if Orsino can see her for a woman I mean that also is then kind of assumed heterosexuality of Orsino but let's keep that as the as the control factor here yeah but yeah so it it definitely adds stakes but that's just seems really like that's a painful story if she's stuck in this uncomfortable place of not being her true self in order to survive where she needs to be then I think a lot of what you've described is why I'm really on board with trans femme Viola if I'm trying to picture an ultimately happy story like definitely there's so much you go through on the way there that's really really painful sure the ending yeah I think I hadn't even gotten mentally to the ending because I'm just thinking of how hard it would be yeah no and like but like I'd be so invested in that right I'd be like oh fucking shit like like you like 
aren't able to pass right now. And so like, like you even like say at the beginning, like, oh, I wish I could hang out with Olivia, but I can't hang out with Olivia. I have to hang out with Arsino and like be a boy in Arsino's court. Yeah. And then all these like moments where Arsino and Viola talk so much about gender, right? In this way yeah. that feels really reductive to me, unless maybe it's about affirming Viola's like womanhood, you know? Like there's this whole like like there'll be like I don't know Orsino's still full of bullshit. He's like men are like this and women are like <laughs> this. Like sure, like, Orsino, are you from the they hide the nineties for me? <laughs> right, but it's like if Viola is having that conversation from a point of view of like, well, hypothetically, I actually think women can feel this way, and I'm a woman who feels this way. Then, then you kind of get to see that playing out inside in this way that's cryptic to other characters but not to us and maybe it can be like I don't know yeah, no, I think it's beautiful I just don't I don't know if it's necessary I don't I think for me I, I'm having a hard time if you wanted to keep it a comedy oh I, yeah absolutely not yeah okay all right no that's what I'm saying it becomes yeah. I, I don't think it's I think it's quite lovely but it becomes this like coming of age drama yeah but but I feel like you trade in this whole, like, if you have stable, gendered, cisgender woman, Viola, and mm. you have all these, like, jokes that sort of fall flat about gender stuff, and you also have all this weird stuff where, like, talking to Orsino or being like, yeah, like, women are just frail, and that's how we are, <laughs> you know, stuff that's just, like, doesn't feels bad feels like nothing is being figured out or playing out and we're just kind of like stuck in this gender this binary gender formulation to me so so it's kind of like I'm ready to be like it's never gonna be an interesting comedy let's make Viola trans and have more fun in the end <laughs> I don't know yeah give it to me <laughs> hey, that was only production one of the five <laughs> I don't want to be like cutting you off um, oh, no, I mean, like the the like I said, there there are a bunch of different options here depending on how how it's made up. I was just gonna say one thing, Emily. You kind of mentioned in our initial break was like we talked a little bit about like what if Viola is like binary trans and like struggling with dysphoria and stuff like that. But we also were like, what if Viola is just kind of like non-binary, kind of like beyond the whole gender thing. I mean, that's how I view it. And like my first read is also like, okay, I'm watch reading it through the lens of my own experience. <laughs> but like, yeah, I love a post-gender moment. Uh, mm. Finding fluidity in performance. I mean, that's a lot of how I found out about myself because I would joke that I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm always cast as these scrappy little boys. And I'm like... <laughs> maybe I kind of am a scrappy little boy. Like, not like a man, but like a scrappy little guy. Like, yeah. and Maybe gender is sort of like a performance. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so like Viola kind of exploring this other aspect of herself and finding love with it. And even though, you know, at the end she quoting like she reveals that she's a woman but she also doesn't like change clothes at least in most um, unless someone's really desperate to get her in a dress but like mm -hmm. you know she's still like finding her love with or still presenting in this way and 
like costumes and is a big part of theater and gender presentation is, you know, it's one aspect of gender identity, but in theater, it's always going to carry extra significance. So if she's there presenting in as mask and then kissing Orsino or whoever, that's, I think, still holding on to that gender fluid um, piece of herself that she finds in this journey. I think the first Twelfth Night I ever saw was like the STC free-for-all. I might have been in like middle school or high school. And I remember the like ending scene with Orsino and Viola was like, Viola was wearing like, was binding with like the world's longest ace bandage for some reason. And like, no, like twirl across the no, no. the entire stage while he was holding like one end of the world's longest ace bandage. Or maybe, sorry, maybe someone else was holding because I remember at the end, she like jumped into his arms with like, with like her tits facing back, like upstage so that no one could see them. But it was just like, it was definitely like an early gender moment for me too, where I was like, I, I'm not convinced that unbinding your breasts is the moment of gender reveal. We all, we all are treating it as. <laughs> She's the man too, right? They're like, oh my, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, um, I actually, <laughs> In in quarantine, my partner and I were doing like a let's get lit, watch a movie from the early aughts and see how it holds up, and just oh, go no. galaxy brain on it. And was it man? That was one of them. Oh, <laughs> you know, so it holds up it's... parts of it, and then we get there. And yeah. Then like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very bioessentialist, very uninteresting, right? Does and very also like trip. now yeah. I'm also like, oh no, they're teenagers, <laughs> right? Like that's yeah. gonna be on the internet forever. Uh -huh. <laughs> I rewatched that recently, and I was surprised by how much better it holds up than I thought it would. But like, the first, yeah, the first like three quarters <laughs> overall. I mean, like it's a romp. You know, it's not, it's not going so many places, but, yeah. but it's fun. Yes, yes. Right. right, but like, I think like you're saying, given the possibilities of like costuming and presentation and like really clear signaling that you can do about gender and other things about characters using costumes in a play, the way to use those things at the end of Twelfth Night is not to have people flash the audience. The way to do is, is like, you know, treat a cool thing about presentation and show some like queer love yeah, in a way. Give her a look that's affirming for who she is. Like that can that can be really powerful. Like you know, I think about like powerful costume moments. I think about like, uh, did you watch One Day at a Time? No. Okay. Well, now oh, I know we're unenlightened, Michaela. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cute. The season one finale. Spoilers for One Day at a Time. Skip ahead. <laughs> 15 seconds um it's her quinceanera and her, she's not sure if her family is accepting her as a lesbian and her grandmother's trying to find her the perfect dress and then she makes her a suit and it was Aww. this beautiful beautiful moment and 
so that like some if if Viola goes on this evolution or like j just then she could find like like I think that a look really smart costume costumer could really make something powerful with that yeah and I think what this whole conversation is also reminding me of is that a flavor I don't think I can enjoy is trans mask Viola like there is this thing you end up with in multiple of Shakespeare's cross-dressing plays where you have like somebody cool like Rosalind or Viola being like I'm a boy now and like you know the the guy that I'm really into is going to be into me as a boy and like like I don't know I'm a gay trans man so I was like I'm like living it right I'm like oh it's possible and then the ending every time like the narrative teleology is like no 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 back to being a woman you were a woman this whole time like nothing could have happened ever with this man you were into if you weren't secretly a woman and like like I, I, I think that that is the most tragic version of Twelfth Night. Yeah. Like, like, like absolutely ruinous version of Twelfth Night. If you do that, yeah, I think I agree. Antonio is sitting there sad. All of it's bad. It's a big downer. <laughs> like I think it. Like there is a again. Like like when I watch it, I kind of my go to interpretation is. Uh, more of a gender fluidity so not mm. historic necessarily um as as a woman but it's not correct it's incomplete and mm. then being able to explore the mask side of her which in in this version of viola that's she's not trans mask but has masculine aspects to her gender that she hadn't explored definitely mm. And then that can find like the ending, even if it's not as clear in the text, even if it's like, oh, thank God you're not a man, you're a woman, woman and men, two genders, ha ha ha. Like, <laughs> That's the comedy part. But, yeah, but then, like, you could, <laughs> but then you can like, if she's in like a gown at the beginning or something, and then she's uh, in boy drag, and then it could be something sort of in the middle, like a more glam suit or something. Um, yeah. I think in this version, I'm also kind of like dying to see the production that's like, also androgyny isn't just like skinny white Viola for this whole time, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Like, I want a fat Viola, like, you know, I want to see non-binary, like characters and gender fluid characters who are yeah. fat and people of color and stuff like that. Yeah, no, there is definitely a very limited, I mean, <laughs> And, there, and, you know, we're always being told, like, be grateful for any representation. It's <laughs> so with presenting, like, non-binary genders, like you were saying, as, like, kind of the skinny white, androgynous, like, socially acceptable, it perpetuates that, like, oh, non-binary being third gender or being split 50-50 when it's, like, what makes it non-binary right. <laughs> yeah and, the one thing yeah and I feel like a lot of what you're talking about with like different instantiations like fluidity and costuming like multiple looks that are definitely queer but with different playing with different aspects of femininity and masculinity right like also helps open up that dimension where it's not just like yeah <laughs> yeah it just be about like finding all these different things um yeah that's uh, and you know Shakespeare I think that 
because it's been done so much, there's so much opportunity to explore. I mean, like you were saying, the variety of ways that you can cast this and different voices that you can showcase and not just the same way that it's always been cast. Yeah, so, so much of theater, but especially classical theater can be really aggressive about that. Mm -hmm. yep. My yeah. Shakespeare pet peeve is when they're like, all right, this role is usually played by a man, but we're going to cast a woman because we're brave. <laughs> and we're going to change her name so it ends in an A because you have to know that it's a woman. Oh, no, Michaela, you're not playing Sebastia, are you? <laughs> no. Exactly. Sebastia? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> No, okay. but I've definitely seen like Malvoli, uh, Stefana. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I'm like, you're making it so precious and. Right. I don't know. I feel like you could do that. But if you make the whole production about it in this way, that's like very subversive, maybe if you're just like, oh, we need to rename this character because gender is so inherent so that clearly yeah. this character that's can't be a different gender than the actor. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's why it's a pet peeve. I'm like, I'm not saying that any production that does that is overall bad, but it will <laughs> make my eye twitch just a little bit. If you're like going in with much lowered expectations, you're like, oh, oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> Well, I feel like, Michaela, we didn't explain how Twelfth Night can become a pure comedy, but we did explain <laughs> how it can become a pure tragedy if you have a really <laughs> shitty take on gender. Like, you can make everybody sad and unhappy by forcing them <laughs> to be heterosexual and cisgender. You know, you know, we could just, like, go down the line and be like, yeah, we're going to torture the shit out of Malvolio, um, and then... <laughs> Uh, Orsino's gonna be like the most sexist pig in like the world. We'll do trans mask Viola and like we'll make Sebastian's leaving of Antonio as intentional as humanly possible. Not Antonio. <laughs> Just like rip band-aids off the entire play. Just like devastating. Oh, <laughs> Emily and I just made the same face where we put our hands over our faces for <laughs> horror. No, no. <laughs> but getting back to what y'all were talking about before, these ideas of exploring a different kind of Viola, that's exactly why I wanted to have this conversation about Twelfth Night through the lens of a problem play. I think I had never considered it to be one in the past but when we took class together Kai mm -hmm. like there are kind of two different definitions of problem play and one of them is like just simply a play that it's like hard to tell is it a comedy is it a tragedy like what genre is this um but the second kind of more recent uh definition is that there are like controversial plot points for the time period that it's being produced in and before we took class together, I had never considered seeing Viola through that lens and the ways in which, if you're not careful about it, you could definitely make this play a problem play, um, depending on how you produce it. So yeah, I kind of wanted to use my platform to share your thoughts and yours as well, Emily, about 
the different ways we can explore this way, both negatively and extremely positively. So yeah, I think yeah. that's, that's <laughs> probably a good wrapping up point for us today. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Thank you both so much for being on the show. You are both humans I have wanted to have on for a long time. Um, so I very Thank much you, appreciate Michaela, it. Thank you, Michaela, for bringing us together. I'm like thrilled to hear Emily's takes on like non-binary, gender fluid, Viola. I'm like, this is the shit I'm here for. This is oh what my God, team. I can talk about this stuff forever. I like, I knew I wanted to invite you, Kai, and then Emily, when your name was thrown into the hat, I was like, oh, those are two people who I know would vibe. Definitely. We're all gonna. just going to hang out under our trans umbrella and talk about <laughs> queer Shakespeare. It's nice <laughs> under here. <laughs> the umbrella is really cool. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, this episode, I believe, is going to drop the second week of May, which is like the 9th or the 10th. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, before we leave, and I apologize, usually I warn my guests before I do this, but if you have any like projects or anything that you're working on that debuts in the month of May or in summer or whatever, plug it. <laughs> Yeah, I, as I mentioned, I'm a geologist academic by profession, but um, I am participating in the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival this year in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, it is all's well that ends well. I'm playing Parolis and it opens in June. Oh, that's really exciting and a great role. Congratulations. <laughs> but lots of pros like we were talking about before <laughs> easy to memorize not so much lots of fun for sure <laughs> there you go and how about you emily um i'm coming off of a little bit of a busy stretch that just relaxed so i just had three overlapping shows but now i am available yes. um uh, so <laughs> Hire me. Um, I'm also a part of this break. I guess I will plug that I received a Helen Hayes Award nomination <gasps> for Outstanding Choreography in a Play uh, for my work last season with To Fall in Love at New Sass Productions. Um, so with that, that ceremony comes up in May. And in that time, I am doing a little bit of press and things. So... I'll try my best to update that in a timely manner on my website, emily-suture.com. Sweet. That's incredibly cool. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> that is so exciting. And if comfortable with the self-promo thing. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. I'm terrible at it too. Um, and if in the time between now and May, anything comes up for either of you, let me know and I'll throw it in the outro to this episode and put links in and all that good stuff. And in the meantime, people can come watch you on 12th night. Yeah. You know, oh you know. Well, they can't because we closed this weekend. Oops. Oh, no, um, go back but... in time and watch Michaela at 12th night. <laughs> Go see me think about how much you would have loved to see <laughs> yes exactly exactly you know uh, I don't know maybe one time in the future I'll get to play Sebastian again and I'll play him as the himbo that I want to play him as um, <laughs> beautiful <laughs> I mean it's correct yes <laughs> 
All right, y'all. Thank you both again so much for being on the show. This was absolutely delightful. And we will see y'all next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Emily, Kai, and Bulls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. If you haven't already, or if you're just new to the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps Bulls with the Bard to grow. And tune in next week as we talk with Regine Vital and Brendan Kennedy about The Winter's Tale. Until then, bye y'all. A thousand, thousand sighs to save, oh, lay me where sad true lover never find my grave to weep there.